Hey, Kevin here. We at Philly Who are currently hard at work crafting new episodes of this podcast to share even more Philly stories as we get into the fall of 2021. In the meantime, we are revisiting some of our favorite stories that we've told over the past three years, and today is no exception. Today, we are going to be revisiting the story of Jesse Ito, who was named 30 Under 30 as a sushi chef at Royal Izakaya and Sushi. Jesse's sushi is absolutely mind-blowing, and Royal Sushi has taken the city by storm. So please enjoy this episode that maps out the origin story of Jesse Ito, 30 Under 30 Sushi Chef, here on Philly Who. And then Jean George starts like singing happy birthday for Greg and all 20, like the whole restaurant's singing. And I'm like, this is happening here. Like, this is so fucking amazing. Yeah, this is like, it's fucking Jean George. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Jesse Ito. Jesse is the chef and co-owner of Royal Sushi and Royal Izikaya, a two-in-one restaurant combo in Queen Village. Jesse's claim to fame is his exclusive 10-seat omakase sushi bar, which is one of the very few restaurant experiences in Philly to get a four-bell rating from the Inquirer. In this episode, you'll hear how Jesse got his start working at Fuji, his father's restaurant in South Jersey, and how one night, one of his regular customers came to him with a proposition. He didn't know how to pitch it either. He's like, yeah, do you want to open a restaurant? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, uh, I'm like, what do you do? <laughs> that customer was cereal restaurateur Dave Frank, and Jesse and his family would sell Fuji, team up with Dave, and go all in on bringing the omakase and izakaya experience to Philly. And it only took him three years to get those four bells. I have vivid memories of my father always telling customers that he always wanted four bells. The fact that we could do this together and get that, it's super amazing. And we'll hear how even though Jesse's already found success before the age of 30, it hasn't been all sunshine and roses. I remember I broke a super expensive dish and I, I still have that shard. I think I kept it because I was like, I, I don't want to forget what really bad service is. These stories and more about Royal Sushi and Izakai and Jesse Ito's journey to the elite, now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. Support for Philly Who comes from Boku Supper Club, an art gallery that has dinner parties featuring complimentary meals from up-and-coming Philly chefs. Check out the show notes to learn more. Also, there is some cursing in this episode. If you've ever been walking around the Queen Village neighborhood of South Philly and strolling south on 2nd Street just past Fitzwater, you may have walked right past Royal Izakaya and Sushi without even knowing it. That's because it's marked simply by a red lantern that hangs in the front and nothing more. As you walk in, you'll find Royal Izakaya to be a boisterous Japanese sake bar with tasty comfort food. But as you walk through the curtain in the back, you uncover Jesse's exclusive sushi bar, where his omakase menu has made the 10 seats surrounding his counter the most sought after in town. It's impressive that a 29-year-old can craft such a world-class experience that would take most decades to perfect. But Jesse actually does have decades of experience since he's been surrounded by the world of seafood and sushi for as long as he can remember. Way back when we used to do Amaebi, so it used to be live at that point, the sweet shrimp. I used to steal them from the walk-in, the refrigerator. You steal the shrimp? 
Yeah, because they were still alive and I thought they could be my pet. So I'd try to keep one as a pet. <laughs> and I would, you know, nurture it for the day. And then my dad would say, you know, where's that shrimp? <laughs> he'd take it and he'll serve it. And I remember one time he fried the head and gave it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a lesson in there? Or <laughs> yeah, The food's not, I don't know. It's food. Yeah. I mean, I deal with a lot of live product now still. And prep people and customers are a little like, oh, that you know, don't kill it. No, yeah. no, don't do it. But to me, it's food. Yeah, maybe yeah. that struck it down for me when I was a kid. Right, from an early age. <laughs> <laughs> These aren't. Yeah, that's not a pet. We're gonna fry the head and let you eat your pet. <laughs> so, from early on, did you always want to become a sushi chef, or is it the type of thing where you couldn't wait to get out? I think for most of my adolescence, it was the type of thing I couldn't wait to get out of. <laughs> yeah, that, that tends to be the case with people, you know, who, who grew up yeah. in certain industries. I think that's why you also, you don't see many chefs' children take it on as their career because they, they saw the void it creates. I mean, you're always working, so you're not home much. And then two, it's, you're working. It's really hard work. Um, and I definitely went through that, but yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed it because I, I thought I was, I, you know, everyone likes what they're good at. I didn't start out as a sushi chef. I mean, when I was 14, I was a dishwasher. That's where it started. I'm sure you loved that. Yeah, I was good at it. Yeah. You, you can be good at dishwashing. Yeah. <laughs> so then at what point did you actually consider becoming a sushi chef? I, I played a critical role in my dad's restaurant towards the end of high school. I could cook everything and I could make sushi, so I had to be there. I mean, this was a small BYO, and we, we had maybe, like, all together 12 employees, 10 to 12 employees. So when one person was not around, it's really hard. Um, so I, I knew I had to stay. And also, at that time, I liked it. I was better at it by then. I was, you know, at 17, I was a, kind of a slacker at school. But, like, I took all the AP courses, but I was like, I don't know. I didn't do my homework and I didn't study and I didn't try. So I was a happy C student, <laughs> nice. CB student. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got a scholarship to Rutgers, but I wanted to go to the restaurant school, I think. Um, and my parents were like, absolutely not. <laughs> you can't go there. Why? Well, they said, we'll teach you how to cook. Yeah. And we'll pay you how to. You've like, been at restaurant school your whole life. <laughs> yeah. And that was a good point. And in retrospect, it was very good that I didn't go to culinary school and instead I went to business school because where I am now I mean understanding the concepts of marketing and business and basic economics and you know accounting that's very important and from there I I started becoming super passionate about like marketing and entrepreneurship and I you know I read books like I love Simon Sinek and Gary Vaynerchuk and, and people like that and I started getting really into it and from there that's where I really kind of took on that aspect of marketing. They didn't teach you that in college, but they, they kind of planted the seed for it. So then after graduating, what was your plan? Was it that you were going to take over the restaurant eventually someday? I could have, but I didn't want to. That was my dad's restaurant. I mean, that's like, I would never fill those shoes, you yeah. know? Yeah. So you've been quoted as saying, I'm a big believer in not trying to fill shoes you can't fill. Why couldn't you fill these shoes? My father and I are different chefs. We're different. And his clientele, they liked his way of doing things, which is not necessarily my way. And I didn't want to continue that way. And to, to rebrand that under my way, I think that's working backwards. He's also a different chef. So he's 
he grew up in Japan. He worked at all these restaurants in Osaka and, and Kyushu, and he has a different background on Japanese food than I do. I mean, I learned from him, but I'm more of a sushi chef. I mean, I certainly can cook, and we make the menu together here at Izakaya. But my role grew more into sushi, so I'm more sushi-focused. And Fuji was split on that. And the way I saw sushi changing in Philadelphia and the what I wanted to do, it would never work at Fuji. It, we couldn't have never built that program there. Yeah. So tell me about the moment that the opportunity came up for you to cross the river and open up a restaurant in Philly. I was 24, and my current business partner, Dave Frank, he had been coming to Sushi Bar a lot. And I had seen him over the years. And my other business partner, Stephen, he had come decades as well and uh yeah dave one day just asked me during service hey jesse you know you want to grab a drink in philly and at that point i didn't have much exposure to the complete restaurant bar scene in philadelphia i'd gone out but i was just like any you know 23 24 right, year you're old like yeah yeah he asked me to hang out one day and after asking me enough times i was like all right you know oh so it took convincing he wanted to meet him in Philly and, you know, grab a drink. I didn't go out that much late after work. And I don't usually hang out with customers like that. So we finally met up at Vernick one night. It was my first time at Vernick. He asked me, he's like, oh, yeah. You know, he didn't he didn't, he didn't know how to pitch it either. He's like, yeah, do you want to open a restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. I'm like, uh, I'm like, what do you do? <laughs> Dave and Steven do bars. They do good bars that serve good food and they every bar has its own you know respective theme like royal tavern is just bar food a good burger good sandwich good fries and that's been around for like i think 12 years and they own kyber kyber used to be a rock venue a music venue so they used to be in the music world they own the, both cantinas so yeah with this kind of reputation you must have been excited to work with these guys yeah, I mean, I didn't know that they even owned any of those things until that moment. I was like, oh, okay. And what goes through your mind when he first suggested it? Well, my parents and I had been talking about what we were going to do at that, you know, because I, I was done college and Fuji was busier than ever. It was, it was a great time actually for business, but long term, we could see that it's a small BYO in a, in, in a small town in South Jersey. Is it what I wanted? What did my parents want for their future? You know, in my mind, I'm thinking about their financial stability, my own goals, and what I want to do in life. So it's suggested to you to open up, to go in on a restaurant in Philly. Now, at that point, what's interesting, I think, about Royal Sushi and Izakaya is that it's really two different restaurants, right? It's two yes. different experiences. Yeah. So then at what point did the sushi aspect come in, right? Because Izakaya is a Japanese gastropub. Yeah, it's a Japanese bar. I mean, it literally means to stay and drink sake. <laughs> and, and then it evolved from a sake shop where people would hang out to where the owners would just send out some comfort, like small plates, yeah. some food so you can linger and eat and drink. And then, yeah, it became a, just a Japanese bar. And then at what point did you add the sushi aspect? The sushi? I mean, we had always talked about that we were going to do the sushi bar room and it was going to be designed differently, but I... Honestly, the sushi bar program where it became like, all right, this is a legit omakase sushi restaurant hidden behind this izakaya, that that didn't really come to fruition until like, I think a month before we opened the sushi bar. How did that idea even come up to do that? Originally, we were going to serve sushi like 
you could just kind of sit down in there and it would be a little more casual. And I mean, the original plan was we, we would serve nigiri, the, the pieces of sushi over rice and izakaya, and we could do it late night. But thinking of the just a setup and the, how to execute that, I, I started taking that idea out. I'm like, there's no way we can. Yeah, produce. why wouldn't that work? Because nigiri is extremely technical. I mean, cutting sashimi and making rolls is like much easier, less technical than making the pieces of sushi over rice, the form pieces. That's dependent on the chef. You need a good chef, experienced chef to do that because everyone cuts their fish differently, molds the rice differently. Some people squeeze too hard. The rice is too big. I mean, it's, it's all these little technicalities that are very specific to the chef. But also what an izakaya is, after I started going to more in New York and other places, izakayas, and talking to my dad about what they are in, in Japan, you, you don't get nigiri in izakaya. Izakaya is a, it's bar food. Um, so yeah, we opened the izakaya in September 2016, and then we opened the omakase bar in December of 2016. And um, a month before is when we, you know, I kind of realized when I wrote the menu and the fish I was going to get, all right, this, this has to be probably just be omakase. So omakase is basically like chef's choice type thing. Chef's choice. Um, yeah. And why did it have to be that? Because when you start ordering all this fish, which is extremely expensive, I mean, the price per pound on some of the fish range from 10 to $65 a pound. And this is head on guts in scales on, the $65 pound fish after you cut the head off and clean it up, that's like a $90, $90 per pound filet after you clean it all off. That's your yield. That's insane. So the issue, and you see this at a lot of sushi restaurants, and I saw that Fuji, is you can, you can order all this amazing product and offer it a la carte, but most people will never buy it. They're not going to know what it is. They're not going to know what it is, and they're going to see the price, and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to order that. I don't even know what it is. And then what happens at those places and even at Fuji, you end up sitting on this product. You have a choice. You either have to like kind of give it away at a much lower, cheaper price. So while it's still good or you're going to eat it or you, hopefully no one does this or you serve bad fish. Yeah. Yeah. Those are your options though. Those are your options. How do you, I've always wondered like, how do you even find, cause a lot of them are wild caught. So is yeah. that right? Some are. Yeah. So, About half. Yeah. All right. Well, either way, like, how did you learn about all these obscure, expensive fish types? And, and like, how do you even find out that one's available for tomorrow? Like, yeah. how does that even work? I mean, that's, um, fortunately, at Fuji, my dad would always let me order one obscure fish every now and then, an expensive one. And I would just taste it, try it, work with it. So you had that curiosity. That's really how. You have to work at a restaurant where they're going to order it. And they're going to allow you to work with product like that. A lot of restaurants or owners or operators, they don't let the chef order fish like that because your food costs, if you don't sell it correctly, which, and we just talked about why you can't sell it correctly in most instances, your food cost goes crazy. And then they tell you, don't do that. And you see that a lot in Philadelphia, I feel like. So were you convinced before opening the omakase spot that that, that would work? Because that really didn't exist in Philadelphia before. I was convinced. You knew. I like to say that I don't, I like to take educated risks <laughs> i like to take risks where i feel like we'll succeed especially when you're risking a lot of money you're risking i'm risking my parents livelihoods i mean they sold everything that come on board with me that's, that's crazy that's a lot of pressure yeah that is <laughs> especially when they already have a legacy <laughs> yeah they sold a 40 year old restaurant wow because they, they trusted what i was what i thought would work wow that's huge i mean that's awesome 
now that I'm looking back, but at the same time, the burden on me to succeed. When we opened, I was 27, and I had two business partners and both my parents who are divorced, but you know, so they, they have different incomes. I was stressed beyond control. Opening a restaurant is very hard, if you can imagine. I mean, you have to build a culture. Any new restaurant doesn't have a culture yet. And you're bringing all these new people, all these employees into an organization. And without a culture present, you know, sometimes things don't go the way you want or as an owner. And that takes time to develop. I think any organization needs a strong culture. Yeah. What kind of culture did you guys build here? We like it where everyone's working really hard i know that sounds funny to say yeah, but yeah. i don't know if you ever go out to eat and you see people doing things yeah, i don't know if they should be doing that yeah like, oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i see it all the time which is why i you know when i go out to eat i try to turn my brain off about certain stuff turn off the owner yeah type brain. like i see pe- you know i don't want to see that yeah <laughs> you're not going to let it happen here at the very right least. i don't well i don't want it yeah especially when i'm here every day yeah i, I can't so yeah that that takes time to build there has to be rules so you mentioned that how you always have been into entrepreneurship and, and that you follow, you know, these entrepreneur personalities like Gary Vee, et cetera. And I do as well. And one thing that I always sort of grapple with as an entrepreneur myself is that balance when you're starting a venture between intuition right. and hard feedback and data. Yeah. Right. So we're kind of going back a little bit to that point where you knew that right. the Omikaze would work. You have, all these folks betting on this with you. And you're only 24, you said 24? I was 24 when we started That's talking crazy, about it, man. yeah. <laughs> so where did you fall on that spectrum? Was there a balance? Like, did you have any data to back it up or was it just, you're going with your gut, we're betting it all on black, let's see how this works. I mean, the thing is at Fuji, we offered omakase. It wasn't quite like what we have now at Royal Sushi. Um, but I did omakase for my regulars and if you walked in, you're like, hey, chef, can you do an omakase for me? I could do it. And there was so much demand for that. And I see what people really want. And I, you know, I saw the way my dad did omakase and he, you know, he included a lot of cook dishes, which is great. But when you're doing cook dishes and you give it to someone, people always need a new cook dish, right? When you go to do a tasting menu at this restaurant, you might not go back for a while because you're going to wait till they change up the menu more. Sushi was all my regulars. It was craveable. Like it's almost like a drug, like an addiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way people talk about it was like I was their drug dealer. They're like, <laughs> hey, they come in and they're like, hey, Jess, I need my fix. Like, and then my super regulars, I'll give them a new piece on me. Like, here, try this. Yeah, you know, like try this good stuff. And then they're hooked. <laughs> and they, and it's super expensive. Next time they order, and you know, then I'll then they're they're then they're it. buying it. <laughs> I sounded like a sushi dealer, right? I guess I am. Yo, I got this new import. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got this new product. You want to try it? <laughs> but it, I saw that it's this craveable thing, and it's and the experience in itself, you know, one piece at a time. Yeah, people love it, and that's the best way to eat it. The difference between eating, you know, sushi one by one piece at a time, prepared one at a time, versus getting a plate is totally different. I mean, you pay a premium to get a warm piece warm piece of sushi so the rice is warm the fish is at room temperature the sauce has just been dressed so it has that like that wet look to it it, it looks live so we call it, like the drop i mean as soon as you drop the fish down on the on the serving plate so there's the ledge and the serving plate and you just drop the fish it's like a magical moment 
so when I came that night, I came with, with Lawrence. Special thank you to Lawrence um, for, for bringing me. I didn't know what I was getting into, really. Like, he just, he's a friend of mine. And he said, hey, you want to come with us to get some sushi? I'm like, yeah, I love sushi. Yeah, sure, I'm there. And we're back there, and I experienced my first drop and had that bite. And I'm like, what is, where are we? Like, what is this? I had no clue. And you're right. It's, I had never had sushi like that before. Now, my first instinct as a, I guess, layman sushi eater was to dunk it in soy sauce. I mean, but most places are built that way. They, I mean, even at Fuji, until when I did omakase, you're provided with the means to do that. And they don't, the chef doesn't sauce it for you. Um, but yeah, if you want to eat really good sushi, just like any other food, it's a race season for you. Not everyone can do that. And in an omakase bar, when you sat down, I don't know if you noticed, I'm cutting all the fish and everyone's sitting. Everything. So we're getting everything at temperature. And then the rice, we, we bring up a new batch of rice for that seating. So it's... It's warm and umptuous. It's, you know, that's the way it should be, the temperature. So it's a lot of effort that's going into creating the right temperature for all the products so that when you put it in your mouth, it's yeah, warm. It's just that perfect experience. Right. And when I, but when I opened the Royal Sushi, the Omakase, I provided soy sauce dishes, even though I dressed it. And I provided soy sauce if you wanted to add. And I provided wasabi on the side if you wanted to add it. And I didn't yell at people for putting ginger on their fish. And I didn't, I didn't like... I would try to like talk to people about it, but I was now I took all that out. Like you still have ginger there. That's a palate cleanser. But if I see putting on your fish, I'm like, I tell them, like, I, I don't advise doing that. I don't yell at people. Um, but I, you know, this, the Omakase programs evolved so much over the past, it's almost two years now that's been open and it's evolved so much. And so at what moment did the omakase part go from just this intuition. I think this can work. I think this is going to work. I'm pretty sure this is going to work. To, we did it. Would you say you're even there now? I, I think we're. I think we're there now. Yeah. I mean, we were there probably a year ago. So was there a moment where you're like, this is exact. Like we were right. This is exactly what we had in mind. Yeah, probably three months in. Wow, that after quick. Opening it. Yeah, it just after the Craig Lebon review, and and then we put Resi on. So we could have a cancellation fee, you know, hold people to it. And that's a whole nother subject. I hate it when people like book multiple venues and cancel. Well, I guess the better answer to your question, when the 10 o'clock seatings became always booked, that's when I knew I was like, all right, this is definitely now it's working. So yeah. that must have been a really cool moment when you had that realization. Yeah. And but now, I mean, we just got the four bell upgrade. And so on Resi, you can see your wait list like you can. Guests can sign up to be notified on certain nights. And it used to be on a Saturday night, there may be 300 people on that notify list. Now it's like 800, 900. Yeah, I think it's breaking the system actually because we were having some hiccups on Saturday where like, you know, if 900 people get a cancellation message and everyone's trying to book in a minute. You're saying <laughs> that there are, if so on a Saturday night, somebody has a reservation, they have to cancel. 900 people get notified that there's an availability? Yeah. And they're all going in and trying to swipe that, that yeah, one spot. it fills up in under a minute. I think the system, it's not used to that demand for one seat immediately just like that. Yeah. So you alluded to the four bell rating yeah. you got. So it was originally three, got upgraded to four. When that happened, how did you feel? That was pro that's probably, yeah, one of the biggest honors so far. Like I felt... The, I, I have vivid memories of my father always telling customers that he always wanted four bells. 
forever he wanted that and the fact that we could do this together and get that and so I've been in my mind that I've been built up that that is like the ultimate thing and it kind of is in Philadelphia I mean how many restaurants have it maybe six or seven now I mean now I'm like with this group and yeah it's like it's, it's super amazing and it's kind of crazy thinking about it I'm 29 and I'm part of this group now After the break, we'll hear about one of the darkest moments in Jesse's career, which happened during the recession. And we'll also hear one of the more recent highlights, like the time that Greg Vernick and John George chose to have their party at Royal Ezekiah. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Philly Who with Jesse Ito. So if you follow Jesse Ito on Instagram, at Jesse Ito, you'll see a photo from October 18th, 2018, announcing that he'd earned the coveted Four Bell rating from Craig Laban at The Inquirer. In the post, he shares a moment of thanks for the recognition, and at that moment of success, he shares a piece of advice. Remember, remember all your past failures so you can succeed in the future. Around the recession time, 2009, things were tough. I mean, that hit us hard at Fuji. My mom and dad owned it. I mean, they were divorced, but they ran it together. So that's not a good <laughs> setup in general where, you know, a divorced couple runs a business together. But, you know, I was part of the mix at that point. And when money starts getting tight, you know, things aren't. That's another thing that we're super busy now. And I would say I'd rather be, I'd rather have the problem be way too busy than slow. Because when you're slow at a restaurant, it's rough. And, but I remember, yeah, at that time, things were a little bit tumultuous. And there was one service where we were super busy on a Sunday. I was alone in the sushi bar. And we had eight counter seats. And it was eight regulars came in. They're all my regulars. So they're like, yeah, you know, Jesse, Matt, can you cook for us? Uh, yeah, sure. And then the rest of the restaurant filled up. And then I get inundated with all these other orders of, you know, I, I still had to make all the rolls and sashimi and nigiri, all the pieces of sushi that the whole other restaurant was ordering. And we sat 70 people at that restaurant, so it was packed. And, you know, I was just working as fast as I can. But you're looking at everyone. I'm just apologizing to all my regulars, dropping the sushi and giving them the plates. I'm sorry that, you know, this thing is so long and I'm still making it for the tables. And I see them looking at me and looking at servers like, what's taking so long? People are angry. And I totally empathize with guests' experiences. Like, I want people to have a great experience. And I just, I remember that night. It was, it was just terrible service and we got through it. But I remember I broke a super expensive dish and I, I still have that shard. I think I kept it because I was like, I, I don't want to forget what really bad service is. But that bad service combined with just that moment, I mean, that time in our life where, yeah, we were in a recession and business wasn't good. And yeah, it's hard on family life too personal life yeah yeah so do you see that shard now and again when you know <laughs> on a day when you get the the four bells and just days when you're selling out 10 yeah. p.m on a thursday like is is that reminder there to that helps you sort of appreciate the highs yeah absolutely i mean i'm a firm believer that you have to like really grasp those low moments and the failures to succeed like every failure i've had whether it be service or personal I try to meditate why that failed. Like, why why was that a failure? I feel like it's really important to dwell on those things. And yeah, it's, it hurts. No one likes to dwell on that. But if you want to get to the next level, you have to fail. 
And you have to see what failure is and feel it. If you never feel it, you're not scared of it. You're not, you don't fear it. Like I'm, I work every day. I'm here like almost every day and my get, my customers and other like, you know, people, other restaurant people or friends are like, you know, why do you work every day? Why, why are you there every day? It's because I don't ever want that to happen here. And I think that's part of the success. Definitely that, you know, my dad and I are here almost every day. So what would you say has been the best, your favorite moment in Izakaya so far? So about a month or two ago, Greg Vernick gave me a phone call asking if I could like take on a late night party of some VIPs. I was like, well, who? He's like, oh, my former boss, John George, because John George is opening in the Comcast center on the top in the new Four Seasons. And they were doing some event at the Bach building. So it would have finished super late. And Greg was asking, hey, can I like host a large party in the Zakaya? Because you know, Omakase is closed and we can't fit like 20 people in there. Right. And of course I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'll, come here. I'll be there too. I'll, I'll stay till 11 p.m. on a Monday when I'm usually not there that late. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And um, yeah, it's John George and he's like all his opener chefs, like the top tier chefs in his company and his like vice president they all came in wow with some other chefs and some other restaurant people and jo- and greg was there too it was greg's birthday that night and like uh, oh my god it's like super humbling like i grew up reading john george books my dad had john george books in his cook book library and this is john george in my izakaya having a great time just like eating it up because they know what izakaya is they've traveled the world they're just ordering bottles of sake and all the japanese bites and I'm coming out with more Japanese bites. I'm like, yeah, try here, this, here, this. <laughs> eat this, eat this. And then I asked Chef, I asked Greg, I was like, hey, can I get a picture with Jean George? He's like, yeah, man, come out. So I, I get sandwiched between them. And this is on my Instagram. And we took a picture in my booth. And then Jean George starts like singing happy birthday for Greg. And all 20, like the whole restaurant's singing. Happy birthday to Greg. I'm like, this is happening here. Like, this is so fucking Your amazing. Restaurant. Yeah, it's like it's fucking John George. Like, <laughs> I love it. I like I don't I don't get starstruck when athletes come in. I don't know much about sports because I'm always working and I never followed up on sports. Right. I don't know if there's an Eagles player or Phillies player is in. Um, although they should come in though, Makase. Yeah, I love that. But <laughs> John George, I was like. I was nervous and starstruck and excited and like my heart was beating fast. I was like, oh man, this, to me, that's a superstar. Like this is a world renowned chef. There's not many chefs on this caliber, this level. And yeah, that was a magical night. They were there to like, I think 1am just drinking. I left before them. Wow. It was wow. amazing. You left. Yeah. I was like, I gotta <laughs> I go. Left. I gotta go guys. You keep partying, <laughs> keep ordering sake. I gotta go, but thank you so much. And that was probably one of the most amazing yeah, moments in Izakaya thus far. Wow, yeah. awesome. What has it been like getting to know the other chefs around the city? It's been awesome. It's part of what makes me love Philadelphia. Philly is just such a, it's an amazing city. It's it's on the brink of, I think, I think it's on the brink of becoming well-known as an amazing city from the rest of the America. Yeah. I don't think, I think a couple of years ago, a New Yorker might, they used to shit on Philly, you know? But that's not the... It's not how it is anymore. Eagles won the Super Bowl. We got chefs representing here who won James Beard Awards. And but Philly's like a super to me, it's still a super low-key, humble city. And I think because of what I just said, that's why we are that way. Not most of the chefs I know aren't pretentious and they're super like 
humble and modest and self-aware of that we're just, you know, we're just cooks at the end of the day. Would you say that there's a collective pride within the upper echelon chef scene here in Philly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick Elmy asked me to do like a pop-up dinner at Laurel, like take over the restaurant, do your menu with your dad. This is before we even announced that we're doing Izakaya, but this is after we closed the restaurant. He's like, hey, Jesse, what's your number? And we had talked before, but we were, I don't think we were buddy-buddy at that time. And it was so awesome that he extended me this opportunity. He's like, yeah, take over my four bell restaurant, or was it, it was three bells at the time, but my like critically acclaimed top restaurant and do your thing. Be- because I did that event, I met all these, everyone who worked there and we started all hanging out and I met all the other chefs at the other restaurants and, and they become such amazing friends and support. That's so cool to hear because a lot of these folks are, you know, established and yeah. it sounds like they were welcoming of the young gun, the up and comer. Yeah. And I, and, you know, they tell me they believed in me too. Yeah. And like, you know, when I got the four bells, Michael Somnoff woke me up. He called me like nine in the morning. He's like, and I usually won't answer. I was like, oh, okay. It's Michael calling. So I picked up the phone and, you know, he was with Steve, you know, they just wanted to congratulate me and send me this, you know, warm congratulations and stuff like that. Like the support system here is awesome. It's great to know these amazing chefs who are, renowned on a national some international level and to be able to call them my friends and to if i if i need to talk to them about something if we want to like just bullshit about stuff we can but that's awesome like to be able to do that if you could send a message to yourself in the past butterfly effect aside you know everything will remain the same you're not gonna lose anything yeah uh from any point from the the you know 14 the five-year-old with the pet shrimp the 14-year-old with the egg ruckers the whole nine yards what would you say I'll say two things. I, I think I would send a message back to my young 20 self or late teens to stop being so cocky because <laughs> you're about to get your ass whooped <laughs> in multiple, multiple ways. Um, yeah, I, I, was so, I, was, I was cocky, I think, when I was younger. And I think the older you get, the more you realize you don't know anything. Yeah. And then maybe my younger self that, old, you know, when I was 14 and just starting in the restaurant business and not knowing what I wanted to do. So, you know that things are going to get a lot better mm. but I, the butterfly effect I, if i told myself that i don't know if things would have happened That's like true. that because i the, maybe the fact that things weren't so great and i wanted to change that yeah i think that definitely played into who i am today sometimes i think about rewording that question to say you know somebody today who may be in your shoes yeah you know and up and coming somebody who's interested in either being a sushi chef or being a chef or whatever you know what kind of advice would you give them if someone's interested in being like a chef, I would tell them that they they should go try to work somewhere amazing and they should travel. And while you're young, before you open a restaurant, uh, he, yeah, here's what I would, say. I would say. You should try to do as much as you can. Travel, go work at some crazy restaurant in another country if you can. If you have the opportunity, you're young and you don't own a house and you don't own a business and you're not married, do it. Because once you open a restaurant, like I, I'm an owner here, I'm kind of grounded, which is great. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love being an owner and I'm, I love having this business, but I want a very linear path where I'm a sushi chef and I'm a Japanese chef and I'm trained one way. But if you have the opportunity to go, I don't know, Japan or Spain or Korea or like South America for a year or two years, and if you're, I would say you risk it. The experience when you're young and able to, risk things and fail and lose things do it don't be afraid of failing 
Because if you're afraid of failing, you're never gonna you're never gonna get to a certain level because you're you're too prideful to put yourself out there. From your perspective, whether in the chef world, sushi or not, what's the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Uh, well, it's, well with sushi, I mean, it's educating the market. Really? Yeah, I mean, we're still doing it. It's going great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you're doing here is you're educating all of us. You educated me. <laughs> well, that's why I said when I when we opened, we offered soy sauce and all the stuff on the side. And I didn't yell at you or I didn't really tell you don't do that. Right. But it was the first omakase bar of this nature. You know, I didn't want to jump in and just like tear people to pieces. That's not really educating people. That's being mean. And then everyone's going to be like, yeah, I'm not into that. That's That's a really pretentious experience. But the way I saw it, I'm like, I'm going to build a market here and I'm going to build regulars. And then as we get to know each other, I'm going to start saying, you know, don't do that. But now it's gotten to a point where I realized that it's my duty to tell people that you, you can't like you. This is the way you should eat it, because if I don't tell you that, if I don't educate you on that or at least give you the framework for it and then you go to New York or you go to Tokyo or you go some other nice sushi bar and you're eating what we would call improperly and then the chef's like oh what do you eat and you say oh yeah i go to royal sushi with jesse ito and they're gonna be like well jesse ito doesn't know anything because <laughs> he didn't tell you that yeah that. and i see other customers of other places and they eat totally like i don't like how they eat I'm yeah it's like, not how you eat sushi yeah so i feel like it's my duty almost for the reputation of philadelphia yeah yeah, yeah. Like, this is <laughs> how, teach us how to if you eat, eat omakase like this is the culture this is the the etiquette to do it yeah if you really don't want to do it i'm not gonna like force you what can i do to make you do it at least you know though right i'm gonna present you with the etiquette so that if you're at some other sushi bar in the country or the world you can do it and they'll be impressed right they'll be like, oh this person knows exactly what, awesome. how to eat sushi on the flip side what's the most encouraging thing about Philadelphia. It's kind of like the chefs here. I, think. I mean, it's the, it's the backbone, the support. Um, everyone's super awesome here. Um, super supportive. Finally, if you could send a message to every Philadelphian, so whether it's a tweet, an email, something written in the sky, a billboard, one message that every Philadelphian would be able to see and ponder, what would you say? I would say try to live in the moment more. I mean, me running on a constant interacting with guests and I'm not like a chef in the kitchen who's walled away from the dining room. I see everyone and I, I have to say like, try to live in the moment. Like if you're eating food with this person you love or you're, you know, like on an anniversary or a birthday or with your friends, like talk to them, get off your phone. Like don't, I see people and I feel like sometimes they're living in through the phone. And uh, and and I totally get that when you get likes and all this stuff, it feels good. But like, if you're at a music concert, instead of holding it, well, the people who videotape the whole concert from their phone and they're looking it through their little screen, <laughs> and you're there, like, put your phone down, it's take right it there. all in. And are you actually gonna ever watch that video again? Right. No, I doubt it. And nobody wants to see it on your Instagram story either. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, looking all around, I was at New York yesterday and we went to Tori Shin, which is a Michelin star yakitori place. Wow. Amazing, amazing. But yeah, there was like some people around me who they're eating this amazing food and they're like cooking right in front of you. And they're just literally on their phone swiping through Instagram. They take the picture, put it to their feed. They keep swiping, they eat it and then swipe again. They're with a friend. They're not even talking. I'm like, what? It, to me, that's just crazy. Why? Yeah. Why are you even here? Yeah. So I would say try to live in the now try to take on your experiences if you want to photograph it sure I mean, 
I do that too, but talk with the chef, interact with the people around you, take it all in, the ambiance, what's going on, what makes the place amazing, the smell. So as soon as you walk in that restaurant, you smell the charcoal. It's like all these little inputs, they don't take it in because they're, they're just stuck on their phone. For more on Jesse and Royal Izakaya and Sushi, check out the show notes or head to podphillyhoo.com forward slash Ito. That's I-T-O. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. Philly Who is a Q9 production with editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. Special thanks to Lawrence Choi and Laura McLafferty, and of course to Jesse for being on the show. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week.